everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week we're going to be talking about drafting red-green in Crimson Vow. Red-green currently has a 56% win rate overall in the format according to 17 lands, which is notably behind red-black, blue-white, and blue-red. Early in the format, I know that it was kind of like tied with red-black at the top, and that's notably shifted. My theory as to why this has happened is that I think there is just kind of more to discover about how to draft those blue decks, whereas red-green is very straightforward and there wasn't a lot to unpack here. So while people have learned more about how to draft the blue decks, um, I think there's just kind of been less to improve upon from how people were playing red-green early which is not the greatest lead-in to explain to you why this episode is going to be valuable, as what I'm saying is you pretty much just do what's on the tin, and there's not a lot of ground to be gained here. And the fact of the matter is I genuinely believe that's mostly true. So if you're looking to reduce your total listening time, you can skip this one. But I hope to still touch on a few things you might not know and try not to waste too much time beyond that. So, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward, just like creatures, removal, tricks kind of deck. You want to, at common, basically your pick order is uh, removal greater than wolves, greater than tricks, greater than non-wolves with the few notable exception that Falconrath Celebrants and Spore Crawler are uh, better than tricks and kind of like can be treated as like about as good as removal. Sorry, not, not as good as removal, uh, about as good as wolves. But then most of the other stuff, I guess technically like Rural Recruit, actually performs acceptably, but not like, well, if you just didn't take rural recruits, you wouldn't be missing out on much. For the most part, uh, yeah, Spore Crawler and Falconrath Celebrants are the potentially notable common creatures that aren't wolves. And then just like all the common creatures that say wolf on them are pretty reasonable to put in your red-green decks, but none of the common creatures are as good as a braid, flame blast bolt, wolf strike in that order. So you just take those, then you take the wolves, probably just um, choosing which wolf to take uh, based on your curve primarily, rather than like, oh, but this wolf's a little better than that. Like hookhand mariner, I think might be the best performing of the common wolves, but it's like 0.1% better than Weaver of Blossoms, 0.3% better than Flourishing Hunter, which is tied with Hungry Ridge Wolf. And then like Fearful Villager and Snarling Wolf are like 1.5% behind Hook and Mariner, which is to say that the full range of wolves, uh, of common wolves, is like relatively narrow. So you're mostly uh, just trying to like build out a curve. I, I've talked about how like black-white doesn't care very much about its curve because it's playing a long attrition game. That's not true for red-green. Red-green is playing an aggressive game. Uh, you're really looking to, you know, curve out, attack your opponent, kill some of their creatures that might block with your removal spells, 
and win an early game. So this is an archetype where you do want to be pretty curve conscious. So you don't want to just go like, oh, I always take Mariners over Hungry Ridge Wolves because Mariners is a better card. You want to pay attention to like how many four drops you have versus how many two drops you have. And you can certainly early on prioritize Mariner over the two drop because there are more acceptable, there are more good cheap cards than good four drops. Although it's really just like Mariner's the four drop you want. And then Hungry Ridge Wolf is quite a bit better than Sporeback Wolf is quite a bit better than the other twos. Disciple's okay, but you don't really want to play like the Blood Petal or the uh, Scorpion. And then obviously there are a bunch of uncommons that you want to play uh, for two. Um, Like you're really happy if instead of having some of those weaker commons, even Sporeback Wolf, if you can play Paxon Pup and Voltaic Visionary, your deck is going to be quite a bit stronger than if you have commons in those spaces. So when it comes to commons, basically prioritize removal regardless of your curve. Whatever creature best rounds out your curve. Like if you would have to take a below rate creature, unless it's filling a spot that your curve really desperately needs, take a trick over uh, like a non-wolf creature. And that's, I think, a pretty safe basic algorithm for how to draft the commons. The uncommons are mostly just like take the good standout uncommons in the packs when you see them. I guess it gets a little bit, you know, more questionable when there's like a top tier removal spell and a solid uncommon. Like, you know, if you see a braid and infestation expert or a braid and ballista watcher or something, you might the pick's not so clear there. But most of the time it's gonna be pretty easy in terms of, you know, the uncommon creatures that you want to play are pretty obviously better than the common creatures that you uh wanna play. There is an amount of flexibility that you're allowed in terms of how aggressive your deck is and what your curve looks like. There's a difference, there's a, a notable difference between decks that are prioritizing snarling wolves and decks that are prioritizing flourishing hunters, for example. Snarling wolf performs worse than Flourishing Hunter overall, but Snarling Wolf has the highest opening hand win rate of any common creature. But it's notable that despite having the highest opening hand win rate of any common creature, it doesn't have a very impressive overall win rate, which indicates that its not opening hand win rate is quite bad. So you want to be careful to only play Snarling Wolf in decks that really care about their opening hands, which mostly correlates with decks that draw relatively few cards over the course of a game, both because they are playing short games and they don't have cards that draw more cards. So two notable kind of uh, slight overperformers relative to how much they're played are Wedding Invitation and Ancestral Anger. And neither of those meaningfully improve your deck. Uh, it's more that there aren't that many different cards that you want to play uh, because all of the common creatures that aren't wolves, with those two exceptions, aren't very good. It's better to just have a cantrip instead of having a weaker card in your deck. So the red-green ends up wanting to play those cantrips a little more than uh, you might expect, especially if you're someone like me who's thinking about synergy and about how cantrips interact with the werewolf mechanic, where it's like, wait, a cantrip makes it much more likely that it's going to be day. I wouldn't want that in a deck that's trying to go to night, but uh, that's you know counterbalanced by, well, it's still better than just putting a bad card in your deck. 
So the more you're playing Ancestral Anger and Wedding Invitation to avoid playing bad cards, because maybe Red Green wasn't wide open, the more cards you're going to see in a game, the less you want to play Snarling Wolf. Uh, the more you want to, the more like you have these cantrips, that's, that means you're going to draw more land some portion of the time with them, which means that you're going to want to go for a slightly higher curve, which means that you're going to want to prioritize Flourishing Hunter over Snarling Wolf increasingly as you have more cantrips. Also, the more you're putting Wedding Invitation in your deck in particular, the more you're looking for Falconrath Celebrant in particular. And Falconrath Celebrant is another card that suggests that you might be seeing a few more cards over the course of the game because you're reasonably likely to use its blood tokens to draw additional cards. And you'd prefer that those additional cards that you draw be Flourishing Hunters rather than Snarling Wolves. So you want to pay attention to am I a Pack Song Pup Hungry Ridge Wolf deck that's really taking advantage of the wolf synergies and also very aggressive where I'm looking to play a short game and starting with a wolf on turn one is going to make my cards considerably more individually powerful. Those are the red green decks that really want to make sure you have snarling wolf or this falls into the usual do you have good rares? Did you get into red green because you saw aggressive uncommons like alluring suitor and pack song pup that uh, make your deck want to go more aggressive or did you get into red green because you opened powerful rares like everbook caretaker or olivia's attendance in which case you're more interested in cantrips to draw to those rares more interested in having a little bit of a higher curve playing a little bit more defensively so that you're more likely to play games where you have time to draw and cast and win with those rares so you're going to be able to identify generally pretty early whether you're on the more aggressive side or the more controlling side based on whether the cards that you took that put you into this deck cost like two, three, or four mana or whether they cost five, six, or seven mana. And it's basically just going to break down roughly that simply with like four specifically, which by which I mean really uh, Helena and Elena or however their names are pronounced being the kind of question mark uh it's good in absolutely anything so it doesn't provide a lot of direction it would both help me run someone over and also it's really strong and can kind of win a game whenever i draw it so i'm happy to play a longer game the the card is like when it's four mana and that powerful it's at exactly the sweet spot to provide no direction because it's just equally good everywhere but then you know you know your red green and your next couple of picks can can inform uh which kind of curve you're looking for and then obviously the more you're on the low curve wolf aggro strategy the more you're comfortable having your non-creatures be combat tricks the more you're on the more expensive end the more you want to have removal instead of combat tricks which also means that the more abrades and flame blast bolts you see early the more that allows you to uh, expect that you'll be able to get to a later game where you'll be able to take advantage of the power offered by Falconrath Celebrant and Flourishing Hunter. Whereas if you don't see that early premium removal, now you're going to be less able to uh, contain your opponent's flyers, more likely to have to race, you're going to want to prioritize the early creatures a little bit more. And then because you have those early creatures, you can prioritize combat tricks over removal spells so that you can attack into larger creatures um, or win races with your combat tricks. 
the non-creature support cards that you have should be informed by the other cards that you have, except that because the removal is the highest picks, you kind of know if you have them early or if you don't. And so you can kind of work backwards where you allow the fact that you have removal to inform that you should be a deck that uses the removal better, which uh, lets you shift your curve up a little bit. Hopefully we managed to unpack a little bit of depth there, uh, both in terms of how to think about uh, your positioning and role in red-green in this format, and also maybe got into some good general strategy and theory there about the relationship between cheap removal versus combat tricks and how it relates to um, the curve of your creatures and the strategy of your game. Um, Hopefully the reaction here is that I uh, undersold the amount of depth that there is to touch on, despite still believing that this is a pretty straightforward archetype. Reckless Impulse doesn't perform especially well overall in this archetype. If your curve is high, it is awkwardly, like it's awkward to use because both you might hit expensive cards with it that you might not be ready to cast. And so you might just lose those cards and then it's not functioning as the divination you want it to. But also the higher curve is, the more able you are to spend your mana smoothly throughout the game and the less you need card draw. If your curve is lower, it's more likely that Reckless Impulse will be good, but also you're less likely to care about a divination, even if it's discounted. Uh, divination's not like an aggressive card, so you're not necessarily looking to... like Reckless Impulse's best case is two mana draw two. Usually you have to go a little bit out of your way. You have to play the cards that it's offering when you offer them, and there might be a different thing that you would have preferred to play first, but you just play the cards it gives you. Its ceiling is still divination, but I spent one less mana. And one less mana is a big deal, and divination's not that bad of a card. So divination for one less mana is generally strong. But uh, if you think about when you're drafting aggressive blue decks, Ideally, when you're drafting aggressive blue decks, you don't prioritize divination as highly as you do when you're drafting controlling blue decks. And so all of that still carries over into your red-green decks, where you're less likely to want card draw the more aggressive you are, because you want to be investing your mana and killing your opponent rather than investing your mana and drawing cards. And even if you can kind of smoothly play Reckless Impulse after you've played everything else, such that you now get stuff to spend mana on when you might not have otherwise had anything to spend mana on, the reckless impulse is still occupying a spot in your hand and you have to convert like spend mana to convert it into something else and if it had just been a different card maybe you would have been able to curve out more smoothly maybe you didn't draw a one drop or a two drop or a three drop because you had this reckless impulse and now you put less pressure on your opponent than you would have if you just played a creature instead that's not to say you never want to play Reckless Impulse in red-green decks. It doesn't perform as badly as like non-wolf creatures, and certainly some portion of red-green decks aren't going to see enough of the cards they would prefer to have that they need to play some not ideal commons. And this isn't like disastrous or anything. It's not like you're putting a ceremonial knife in your deck, but it is not a priority. And I think that might be basically everything I felt like I needed to touch on here. Yeah.
Yep, that's that's going to do it for the stuff that seemed important to me to talk about. I think the only other thing I can think of that it would be really useful to comment on is like exact numbers, like how many creatures do you want? How many one drops? How many two drops? How many three drops, etc.? How many removal spells rather than tricks should you have to believe that you're a controlling deck rather than an aggressive deck? I, I get how having a strict guide for that can be really useful. Unfortunately, A, magic isn't that simple. The exact nature of your creatures, the exact, like all, all of it depends. It can easily be, you know, plus or minus one or two for various reasons. Wolf Strike's quality is going to vary a lot depending on the exact amount of power that your creatures have. Which tricks you want are going to be a function of like what your curve is, what your like, whether you want the like, defensive aspect of Witch's Web versus the bonus trample on a high-power creature of massive might. In addition to, oh, well, it's complicated. Also, I don't draft red green that much. Uh, I I mostly draft blue in this format, and uh, that means that I don't play red and green because I play usually at most one one color that isn't blue. And so I I don't have, oh, I've done 30 drafts. I've tried, you know, a bunch of decks with 16 creatures, a bunch of decks with 17 creatures, a bunch of decks with 18 creatures. And I feel like exactly this was the sweet spot. So this is to say, I don't know everything. I'm telling you what I do know. Um, So that kind of long aside about what I can't help you with. Let's hope chat has some questions for me that I can help you with. So going to turn this over to Twitch chat for questions on anything else I should touch on. While I do that, I'm going to apologize for my failure to uh, remind listeners that uh, the notes for this episode are available on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes and on the subject of patreon.com slash drafting archetypes i want to thank my newest patron paul uh paul really appreciate the support anyone else who is um enjoying the program and interested in going a little deeper and getting a little bit more information please uh check out the patreon page and see if any of the things that we offer appeal to you to support the show so really twitch anybody have any questions for me first question have you noticed any interesting play patterns about manipulating nighttime for those of us who still remember uh older innistrad formats i still occasionally trip myself up on thinking about double spells on opposing turns either my opponent or like my opponent playing something when i'm trying to flip tonight or something like that and have to remind myself sometimes that none of that matters and the person who's turned it is has full control over whether or not it's going to get uh, flip. In general, I uh, think that it's not a great idea uh, most of the time to take a turn off to go to nighttime, especially if it costs you anything in terms of developing your board, unless there's a really good reason. Uh, it's not that hard for most decks to double spell when they want to to flip it back on you, and the payoffs for being knight are usually not that big. I guess like the biggest exceptions to this 
are the Uncommons, most notably uh, Child of the Pack and Ballista Watcher, where with Child of the Pack, you can just spend your turn making a wolf and then flip to knight. Um, and with Ballista Watcher, it's not that uncommon that you'll like have six mana and a Ballista Watcher, and you'll just go, okay, pass. Now there's nothing you can do to stop us from going tonight, and now I get to like double activate my Ballista Watcher to kill your two toughness creature or your two one toughness creatures or whatever. Um, but aside from that, I kind of just usually end up letting it go tonight when it's when it's just natural, like when there's not something I want to do. Occasionally I might. I guess like the big thing is when using damage-based removal spells, which all of the removal spells in red and green are, uh, a braid, wolf strike, flame blast bolt. A large portion of the time, it's correct to use those spells at sorcery speed or on your turn, because when you wait, you risk your opponent having a pump spell to save their creature. But if you have wolves, that can easily tip the balance to, oh, I'm going to wait to go to night, even though I risk the chance that my opponent can respond to this trick or to this removal spell with a trick. If like me, you've uh, learned some hard lessons about waiting too long on your damage-based removal, and so now you like to fire it off at sorcery speed a reasonable portion of the time that you know that the first thing that you're going to end up wanting to do on their turn uh, is kill their thing. Well, they're, like when their creature's going to attack, and that's the first action they're going to take, and you're going to kill it in combat before doing anything else, there's generally no reason to do that on their turn instead of your turn. Day-night gives you a reason to do it, which can change that math. But um, you shouldn't... That's like the amount of out of the way that you should be going to flip tonight. Next question. I mentioned that Reckless Impulse is bad in late game decks and early game decks. So when is it good? Uh, so this basically i think it's never great but i think that it's like a playable red card and it's not that rare that you have to like go to the second tier cards in most cases it performs worse in most of these decks than just a straight cantrip like ancestral anger or wedding invitation but you know if those aren't available and you know you have to play this or like a weak creature or whatever, then um, it might be okay to play Impulse instead of playing a bad card. Uh, as to when is it good, uh, I think, you know, it's relatively better uh, when your curve is lower than when your curve is higher. That said, it also kind of prefers not combat tricks, and you usually have combat tricks when your curve is lower. It also helps hit lands to, like, get to more mana, the best answer might be when you're kind of medium, like you're not very fast, but you're maybe like more centered on like threes and fours. Um, you don't have so many six drops. You don't have so many one drops um, would probably be the best spot for it. So if you end up in kind of a like mid range red green rather than like clearly big red green or clearly a little red green. But in general, I think it's just a play it when you would have to play a bad card, but don't play it over good cards kind of thing. Like, I rarely like to acknowledge the existence of, like, 23rd cards or whatever, where it's like, oh, you know, here's this, like, barely playable that ends up, like, sneaking in as the last card in your deck. Because I feel like 
limited formats these days are such that instead of playing a weak card, you can play a more narrow card that's synergistic with your deck, and you never have to have this, like, 23rd that's a 23rd because it's just not very good, and you can usually have a 23rd that's a 23rd because other people didn't want it. But it doesn't always go that way, especially when your deck is kind of like low synergy and straightforward. So Reckless Impulse might be a reasonable, like, I, I guess what I think of as like an old school 23rd. Like the cards that you had to play back when the average power level of cards was a little bit lower. And you did have to play cards that were just like objectively no one wanted them sometimes as a, well, like this is the other card I can cast kind of thing. Next question. Have I had or seen a red green deck that didn't care about wolves maybe just suitor based aggro or other ways how much would that change the prioritizations so i don't think like there aren't that many cards that explicitly care about uh the wolf tribe right it's like pack song pop and hungry ridge wolf are the important ones and then there's like the rune bound wolf or whatever and maybe something i'm forgetting but like Overall, like the explicit wolf synergies are pretty small, except that Hungry Ridge Wolf mostly goes to red green decks, so they end up like being in that space pretty often. I, I think the reason that you want all the wolf stuff is less that you want them for those explicit synergies and more that they just play properly for what the deck's trying to do. You're not using the other cards as well as the decks that want them for other reasons. The wolves are generally the more like straightforward, aggressive uh, creatures. So I, I don't think it super matters whether or not you like have a pack song pop or a hungry ridge wolf. I think that like that does more to change your relative evaluations of the wolves. Like you want snarling wolf if you have those cheap creatures that care about wolf count rather than like flourishing hunter. Whereas you don't have that stuff you're more likely to just play you know some of the more expensive wolves that said you know obviously if you don't care about wolf spore crawler uh falcon wrath celebrant and potentially a rural recruit maybe move up a little bit for you but for the most part i think it's just like the wolf creatures are just uh happen to be slash were designed to be the cards that aggressive red green decks would want like when they made a card that would go in this kind of deck they gave it the wolf tribe for the most part next question this is a green deck so it has access to some decent fixing how invested should a red green player be in splashing and should it happen for anything that isn't a total bomb broadly the answer is not very and um notably reclusive taxidermist has what i consider very unimpressive stats it performs worse in this archetype than like hungry ridge wolf and falcon wrath celebrants to give you an idea of like power level and curve comparison there where like, you know, being, it's like just a little bit worse than Hungry Ridge Wolf, but it's like, usually it's, I, it's something I think of as a very high priority, good, uncommon. So to see it behind what I consider a kind of, you know, mediocre common when you're not an exact red green is a bit of a statement. I will always say the more aggressive your deck is, the less you want to splash. So the more you are the like wolf aggro version of red green, the less you want to splash. The more your Falconrath Celebrant, Flourishing Hunter, the more you want Weaver of Blossoms to ramp to those anyway, then you have Weaver to ramp Falconrath Celebrants to like give you the blood tiny bit of like awkwardness of splashing fix situation thing. It is it is possible for some of the bigger versions of red green 
to want to splash. Most of the kind of default versions of red-green uh, have no interest in splashing and also don't want to prioritize the taxidermist, though Weaver Blossom is just kind of generally good enough that you're not really looking to avoid playing it. But I would say that this is a deck that is minimally interested in taking advantage of Green's ability to splash, and you mostly should not be splashing things that aren't total bombs in most versions of this deck. Do I find that Visionary, Voltaic Visionary, the 3-1 uncommon, has reduced usefulness in higher curve decks? It is a little bit worse if your curve is higher, but it doesn't meaningfully change when I'm taking the card because it's just strong enough regardless. If my curve is a little bit higher, I'm a little bit more likely to like attack with it rather than activating it if my opponent doesn't have a blocker. And sometimes I will just treat it as a 3-1 creature and just trade off with it or whatever if I don't feel like I need the value from flipping it, um, especially if like I'm risking doing two damage to myself to hit a card that I can't cast. Sometimes I'm, that's just not something I'm in the market for. But the card is still just strong enough that you want to, you know, take it and prioritize it in basically any deck that can cast it, I think. How many two drops should you aim for and how does it compare to the number of two drops and other archetypes? Which is, gets into the precise numbers conversation that I mentioned is a bit difficult. This obviously depends a little bit on your overall strategy, how aggressive you are. It is difficult to not spend mana on turn two and not fall behind. So you want enough two mana plays to uh, not find yourself in that situation. That means that regardless of whether you're an aggressive deck or a controlling deck, you generally want something to do uh, with two mana. A braid is a card that you can think of as a two drop in your control decks, but don't want to think of as a two drop in your aggressive decks because your aggressive decks care about applying pressure where your control decks just care about making sure that you don't get run over. So if I were to give you a number about how many two drops you're aiming for, I would expect that you would expect that you want more two drops in your aggressive deck than your controlling deck. But the way that you would potentially think about that internally is in an aggressive deck, a braid doesn't count as a two drop. In a control deck, a braid does count as a two drop. With all of that understood, I would say a control deck probably wants six as a minimum, way, ways of doing something on turn one or two. So like if you're playing a Snarling Wolf, which you don't want to be trying to do in a control deck, but whatever, just an example. If you're playing a Snarling Wolf, that might let you get away with playing one last two drop. And then a Braid, Flame Blast Bolt, uh, Flame Blast Bolt might be a better example than Snarling Wolf, can also uh, take the place there as something that will let you avoid falling behind. Neither deck wants to count which is web is a two drop that just doesn't factor into do i have enough two drops i think that an aggressive deck wants like probably six is a floor two drops and one drops don't really count there because you want to make sure that you're playing a two drop on two and having a one drop is like an extra bonus that you do want but like you know if you have three one drops those don't help you make sure that you played a two on two and the two on two is so important to applying pressure that you want to just have both so my answer i guess is aggressive decks aim for six plus 
actual two mana creatures and then support that with other cheap plays. And in more controlling higher curve decks, you probably want six one and two mana spells that can interact for less than three mana. That's the best I can do to answer that question. How does that compare to the number of two drops in other archetypes? I'm going to be honest, like I said, I haven't played enough of uh, this archetype in particular to have exact numbers in mind. Those are numbers I'm porting over from just my general opinions about what uh, decks want. So they are not only the same as, but literally cop copy pasted from uh, the numbers that other archetypes want, which also is to reiterate that you should take them with a grain of salt. And that's my answer to that question. Next question is a follow-up on the wolf, non-wolf thing, uh, expressing surprise that Blood Petal Celebrant doesn't perform well. Can I theorize as to why? I think that Blood Petal Celebrant doesn't perform well because it's just not actually, uh, it, it just doesn't actually line up very well against the format. There are too many three and four toughness, three mana creatures uh, that see a good amount of play and it just lines up really poorly against all of them fearful villager kindly ancestor gluttonous ghast it doesn't frequently get to get very much damage in as to whether there are red green builds that actively want that card if you're short on two drops and long on tricks uh two mana first striker plays pretty well with tricks but it notably just doesn't attack very well without support and so um, it kind of underperforms across the board. Next question, if we talked about the two mana tricks, any, any synergies that make one or the other better? I think the answer is just Witch's Web is better than Share Strike because it can be used to counter a removal spell or ambush an attacker or especially an attacking flyer. Uh, it just has more different uses and the three toughness that it gives you is often going to accomplish the same thing that first strike would have accomplished on sure strike that's just the answer there um it's not so much about synergy it's just the card itself web just performs better than sure strike and massive might i believe performs better than Witch's web so reasonably reasonably clear easy sort where again there might be some variation there where there's a meaningful difference in how Trample and Untap plus Reach play. So if you feel like your deck is uh, considerably more interested in what Witch's Web is offering, there's a good chance you're right. You could prioritize Web over Massive Might. The next question, is running combat tricks acceptable in green decks to make up for any lacking removal? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you have a bunch of creatures that you're trying to attack with, and you don't have removal and your creatures are on the smaller side in particular, you're going to need to be able to attack into your opponent's bigger creatures unless you have some other plan to win the game, like maybe eventually drawing uh, an Avril Caretaker. But assuming that your plan is, well, I have these small creatures and I need to connect with my opponent uh, to win the game, then if you don't have removal, you're going to have to play combat tricks or you risk just conceding if your opponent plays a Flourishing Hunter, which is a really bad spot to be in. So yes, uh, combat tricks are playable and the expected way to deal with, I am trying to attack with creatures on the ground, but some of them might not always be the biggest creature on the battlefield. Next question, <laughs> pretty off topic, but we'll, we'll, we'll run with it. Can you count syncopate as a two drop in slower decks uh, relative to, for the purpose that I was talking about, about having interactive plays to avoid falling behind? Yes. Next question, would you say red green is pretty one dimensional and probably not worth running without at least one bomb? 
I would not conflate those two ideas. One dimensional is not actually a knock on its power level as much as you might want it to be. Um, if the one dimension is a good dimension, then it's a good deck. I don't think that it particularly needs a bomb. There are a lot of like good, powerful uncommons, and uh, the deck has a reasonable game plan. And it, the fact that it, like it's one dimensional is just not that big of a strike against it. Curving out with slightly above rate creatures and uh, supporting them with efficient tricks and removal is just a realistic way to win games of limited. So I guess that is to say that is not something I would say. Looks like I'm all caught up on questions. So I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks, as always, for uh, tuning in. And especially thanks to everyone in chat who brought up some more questions to discuss. And that's it for this week. And I'll be back next week. And have a great set of uh, any events that you may be celebrating in the intervening time. Thanks and goodbye for now. Speed.